0: Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we thank you as we as we come to your scriptures today. We pray, Lord, that you would drive out of us in this space any distraction, uh, anything that would cause us uh, to miss your Spirit's presence and and to miss your word. So we pray, come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord, and fill this space. Come, Lord, and fill our hearts and our minds. Come, Lord, and fill my words and open your scriptures to us. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm a pretty big sports fan, and when I'm driving around town, which I seem to do a lot of, I often will listen to sports radio, not because sports radio is the, the best programming in the world, but because it keeps my mind occupied, and it's stuff I enjoy, and one of the things that comes up invariably in sports talk is the question who is the GOAT? By GOAT, I suspect you know, but I'll tell you, GOAT is an acronym, greatest of all time. Who is a GOAT? And because of the nature of sports, which is ultimately about competition and winning and losing and success rather than failure, numbers and statistics, the crowning of champions, and ultimately, greatness, well, that kind of conversation enters in pretty frequently in the midst of every sport. So in basketball, the question might be, is it LeBron James or Michael Jordan or Will Chamberlain or somebody else? In golf, is it Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods? Tennis, is it Nadal, Federer? We sure, certainly know it's Serena Williams for the women. Baseball, is it Babe Ruth? Is it Hank Aaron? And football, although I hate to admit it, it's probably Tom Brady. (laughs) As we come into March Madness, is it Kansas or Duke or Kentucky? My wife will let you know it is definitely North Carolina, but not this year. (laughs) But maybe the greatest of all time, we'll see. Of course, Mike Krzyzewski uh, had his last game against them yesterday. Now i decided this morning not to bring this question up between carolina and clemson because that's right like we get that right trevor i don't really pull for either i just know i sometimes i like to rile people up a little because i want to be sure you're paying attention today you know If you're not a sports fan don't tune out because this goes into all sorts of areas of life doesn't it i mean this idea of greatness people ask the question of who's the goat in all sorts of areas you could ask in classical music is it mozart or is it bach or someone else in hip-hop is it jay-z or eminem or drake rock is it the beatles is it the stones is it the dead politics you could even put it there is it washington or lincoln Is it Elvis? He wasn't in politics, by the way. (laughs) And it can get really ludicrous, can't it? Ultimately, this question, though, of greatness is something that's common to the human heart. And that's why it comes up so often. And the reason is this. Greatness is actually hardwired into the human heart because as male and female... We are uniquely, as male and female, created in the image of God. And God is a God of greatness. And we who bear God's image, therefore, have within us this call, this drive, this wiring to greatness. The tragedy, though, of course, and we've seen this all through our His Story series, we've seen it from the beginning up until the time we're at today in the Gospels, is that this issue of greatness gets corrupted as everything has been corrupted by sin. So that greatness, well, it becomes about getting ahead of others. Often at the expense of others. Making ourselves great, or at least making ourselves look and sound great in the sight of other people. In the gospel lesson today, the disciples are asking the question of greatness. Who's the goat? Who's the greatest? Which of us is number one? Who's the best? Who's going to have the most power, the most influence? And this is where it sounds so much like us. There's no difference ultimately between them and us because those are questions we know. And those are questions that we have asked. And those are often questions we live by. And so Jesus deals with the question of greatness as God sees it. And so it's good to pay attention. Let's go ahead and look at the text if you want to look in your bulletin or the screens or you've got a Bible app. Just a few verses today. And really, I'm only going to land on four of them of the six primarily may touch on the others. Matthew 18:1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, as always, we want to start with context because we're in the midst of narrative. We're in the midst of the flow of the events of history. And so we want to recognize that we're only days, maybe a week or two, from where we were last week. And last week, we found ourselves on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus took three of the 12 disciples with him up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John, and they saw him transfigured in front of them, revealed for who he truly is as Son of Man and Son of God. And they experienced the descent of the cloud of God's presence and the voice speaking from the cloud of Jesus, this is my Son My chosen, whom I love, listen to him. And so we're just a few days from that. And here they are as they're going along, and an argument emerges. Now, you get the sense of the argument a little better from Mark and Luke's version of the story. They're all telling the same account. And just as a little side note in reading the Scriptures, when you see stories repeated in each of the Gospels, pay attention. It's in there for a reason. It makes all three or four because it's very important. Somebody asked, why is this silly little story in, in this streak of what we're doing in his story? Because it's so important. And here they are. This argument has emerged And let's just use our imagination for a minute. Let's get out of the realm of being religious about the Bible and about what happened and putting it way back there. And let's just see if we can kind of get it in our mind's eye. What's going on there? Can you see Peter, James, and John, right? They've been singled out from the other guys and taken up on this mountain. And they've seen something that has wrecked them in so many ways. And Jesus has said, don't tell anybody about this until the right time. And what happened? Well, what do you think the other disciples asked? Hey, what happened up there? They're like, well, we can't tell you. (laughs) We'd like to tell you, but we can't because, see, Jesus told us not to tell you. That's not hard to imagine if you've got kids or if you've looked at yourself. This way of doing insiders and outsiders of who's on top and who's on the bottom And of course, in a setting like that, it's also not so hard to imagine that of the other nine, perhaps a few of them had some low self-esteem. We don't know, but it's not that hard to imagine in the midst of 12 people. What do you think? Some of them are probably going, well, I know I'm not the goat. Those guys are the goat, and they're letting us know they're the goat, but it's not me. Then there's Judas, who's like, I am definitely the goat. And maybe there's Thomas over there asking questions of the whole thing and, and really skeptical that any of them are the goat. Because that's the way Thomas rolls, right? That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. And I think what's happening in the midst of the conversation, in the midst of the argument, is that the disciples are doing this thing that is common to all of humanity. Each of them is primarily thinking about themselves and how they can advance themselves, how they can get ahead, and how life will go in their preferred way. Now notice this, because it's so important, and it'd be easy to just blow past this in this very small text. Notice how God deals with them. Notice how Jesus engages them. He doesn't rage at them. He doesn't rebuke them, forcefully shaming them, you know, tongue lashing them. He corrects them. He speaks the truth and he is very firm, but there's an incredible gentleness in the way he does it. Even though this mistake that they're in the midst of making and that they've really committed is incredibly serious. In fact, this is probably the most serious sin in the whole book. And yet, look at how he's coming to them. Humbly, gently, telling a story, approaching them, not only in the way he speaks, but in the actual way he shows it. In the actual way he approaches them. In this this sin that could keep them separated from God for all of eternity, he's still gentle about it. He's still kind in the way he approaches. He's actually humble, both by what he says and by how he says it so verse two and calling to him a child he put him in the midst of them and said truly i say to you unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven jesus gives them this object lesson he notices. this he doesn't tell them not to have the conversation he doesn't rebuke them about greatness And that's the clue to him understanding that greatness is hardwired into the human condition, into our hearts. But what he does is he gives this great little object lesson by pulling this child and forcing them to deal with what is greatness. Really, what is greatness? And that should probably cause all of us to pause and to also ask the same question. What do you think greatness is? What are your aspirations? For you, what is success? Is success the one who gets the most attention? Or who has the greatest name recognition? The one who's the most famous? Has the most influence? Gets the best seat every time? Gets all the opportunities, gets the call first, whose face is most recognizable? Is success more about cars and houses and vacations and influence and prestige and money? More followers on social media? Is that greatness? Because that's what the world says it is. And many of you are building your lives on this very thing. And I've been a pastor long enough to know that many of you are teaching your children and your grandchildren to build their lives on something that will be absolutely catastrophic if it plays out to its fullness. This is serious stuff that he's taking us into. Jesus says to them and to us, see, you have to turn. Turn. You have to turn away from that kind of value. And he's using repentance kind of language. Like repentance is not just about modifying your behaviors. It might involve that, but repentance is about coming back to God's perspective. And once you come back to God's perspective, then it changes the way you live. And so he says you've got to turn. you become like a little child or you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be humble like this child. Where you'll be separated from God for all of eternity. Now, they were only thinking in the natural. They were thinking about who's going to be the chief of state, right? Who's going to be on the joint chiefs of staff? Who's going to be, right, the head of his finance committee? They're thinking naturally. And he's speaking as he always does to the fundamental issue of the human heart, which has eternal implications. Oh, it affects this life, but it goes so much beyond the few years that we walk around sucking air. Jesus redefines greatness. Look at verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be the goat in God's eyes? Be humble like a child. And we need to understand that this standard of greatness that causes you to enter into the kingdom is the same standard we're called to live from all through our days. So it isn't just a one-time event. It's the flavor of the kingdom. It's the shape of the kingdom. And why? Because that's the flavor, shape, character, and heart of God Himself, who is the greatest of all and yet is the most humble of all. When we become Christians... We have to face up to the fact that we're sinners and we don't deserve anything but God's condemnation. We have to remove ourselves from the center of our life and put Him as the center of our life. As I often say in our new members class, we have to take off the crowns from our own head and we have to place them at His feet because He is the only one who rightly deserves the crown. We have to admit our need. And that means we have to let go of our pride. And that's really what he's getting at here. He's getting at your issue and my issue. He's getting at our issue. He's getting at the issue that we all have. It's our pride. Me, I want to be number one. And guess what? Much of your life you have lived the same way. In the book, The Cross of Christ, Laura and I are getting ready to read this together. John Stott reflects in one of the chapters on something that was written by George uh, Bernard Shaw about the Salvation Army. It's called Major Barbara, and and really it it takes place in England where there was a day and an age when the Salvation Army was huge in its its influence, particularly in England. It wasn't just the people ringing the bells, you know, at Christmas that you throw a couple coins in in the pot. And so it was a comedy that he wrote, a bit of a spoof, but it wasn't a spoof to put them down. It was just the context for this story that he tells. And the story is about a guy named Bill Walker. And, and Bill is this really hardened young man. He's 25. He's a drunk. He's on the streets, right? He's tough, and he's proud. And he arrives on this, this one really cold January morning, and he's drunk, and he's angry, and he's at this Salvation Army shelter. And and he's particularly angry because his, his pride and his ego have been tweaked because his girlfriend, whose name is Mog, Mog has become a Christian through the Salvation Army, and, and she's got this new boyfriend, this new guy in her life named Todger Fairmile, which is about as British a name, I think, as you could ever have. Todger Fairmile, and he's also become a Christian. He's this sort of low-level um, wrestler. He's on these, this wrestling circuit, and he's become a Christian too, and, and Bill is furious, And he's so drunk and he's so belligerent. And if you've ever seen somebody in that state of mind, like you do things you don't really mean to do, he ends up hitting in the face this young woman who's working named Jenny Hill. She's one of the volunteers in the Salvation Army. And it cuts her lip. So she's got this bloody lip. And all the people in the shelter start to mock him and berate him and tell him, how could you do that? You're such a coward. You would never have done that to Todger." And so he's ashamed, right? And, and he's angry. And his conscience is up. But he ain't going to let anybody know that. And he decides, I'll fix this. And this is the way I'll fix it. I'm going to go to Todger. And in order to fix what I've done to Jenny, I'm going to spit in his eye. And I'm going to let him hit me back in the face. And so he sets off to do that. That's his idea of how to make things right and how to expiate his guilt. And so he goes. And it doesn't go to plan at all. In fact, he comes back and he's, he's telling Jenny, I went to hit him in, I went to spit in the face, I, I went to put my face forward for him to hit me. And what did he do? He looked up and he said, how is it possible that I have been counted to suffer shame for the gospel? And Mog, all she said was glory, hallelujah. He's furious. And what makes him even angrier is the fact that Jenny has sympathy on him and tries to comfort him that his plan didn't work. She says, it's okay, it doesn't matter, I forgive you, and that makes him furious. Stop talking about forgiveness. I'll fix this, you'll see, I'll get it straight, I'll get it right. And so one of his friends gets sort of a ticket that's got a fine with it, he goes, I'm going to pay that, because I will pay back what I owe. I'm going to deal with this issue. It is a beautiful and poignant and horrible picture of the way the human heart works in its pride. Unwilling to receive. Unwilling to humble itself. Determine, I will pay my own way. I will do it myself. Listen to what Stott writes. He says, we insist on working for what we've done, paying for what we've done we can't stand the humiliation of our neediness we'd rather perish than repent rather lose ourselves than humble ourselves and he goes on to write this the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone and God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Jesus says, unless you humble yourself like this child, you'll never enter in if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven be humble like a child and lest you think that this is an isolated incident all the way to the cross and that's the direction we're headed now guys we're set for jerusalem and jesus in this section of his journey on this earth continually says i'm going to be handed over i'm going to the cross i'm going to be crucified i'm heading to my exodus I'm going to be killed and on the third day raised again. All the way up to the Last Supper. He's trying to get this message through in these guys' hearts. Even to the point that that at the Last Supper, as he's broken the bread and he's given the wine, he then does what? He gets up from the table and he puts a towel around his waist. And God himself gets down on his knees in front of these in front of these proud men. And I would say, these proud women. People like you and me. And he washes those men's feet. And Peter can't stand it. He says, you'll never wash my feet. That's, the lowest slave doesn't do that. Never. Not me. I don't need it. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter, well, he tries to control it. Well, then wash all of me. He says, you've already had a bath, Peter. Then he says, look, if you understand what I've done, then you go do the same thing too. And then what happens? Within 24 hours, the Lord of glory is crucified brutally. Naked. In a shameful way mocked spit upon beaten tortured for you and for me and for those guys for our pride for our unwillingness to humble ourselves to bear what we rightly deserve for what that we might be forgiven and made new and we might enter into his kingdom Not so that we then lord that over each other or over anyone else, but so we can be like him in this earth. Having his power to be his people and to live life his way. And sometimes that means we get crucified for it. And sometimes it means he raises us up to positions of authority and power in the world, but he expects us as his people to be humble in those places to see others as better than ourselves. And what does that look like in practical life, at any level or age, whether you're a student in here or at home or you're an adult? It means who is the person in your world, in your class, in your job, in your neighborhood, like real life, people that you know, that everybody else says is beneath you or beneath them? Go be humbly kind to that person. Go be Christ's presence to that person. And go be Christ's presence to those arrogant people egging you on to be just like them. Why? Because that's how the kingdom grows. And that's how Jesus is glorified. You see, the goal of life is not that we get rich and retire early and die with the most stuff. It's not even, the goal is not even heaven. That's the destination. The goal is that you and I would be like Christ, who for the joy set before him endured a cross, scorning its shame, and God raised him up to the highest place. For you see, the heart that's humble is always lifted up. Always lifted up. Maybe not in this life, but it will be called the greatest you will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now repeat after me. His way, His, way. his time, his time. For, his for His glory. That's how it works. When will I be raised up? And how will it happen? Oh, it'll happen His way in His time. But it'll happen for His glory. As we enter in this season of Lent, it's a season where we make space for the Spirit of God. If you were here last week, you know the Spirit of God was very present. He's very present today, by the way. That's that kind of weightiness you're feeling. Maybe it's that, oh my God, what's going on here that you're feeling? But the space that we make in this season is not to be morbid. It's so that we give God access to our lives so he can show us those places where we're out of alignment with him. But, but catch this, lest you're afraid of that. Remember how He approached these guys. He approached them humbly. He approached them gently, not to smash them, not to hurt them, speaking the truth, but doing it in love so that they would be free. That's what he wants for you. And That's what he wants for me, that as we walk through this season making space for God to show us the places in our lives out of sync with him, where we've taken on the values of the world, where we've taught our children to take on the values of the world, we might turn and like children, humbly repent and ask him to do a new work in us for his glory and for the good of the world. Let's pray. Mm, Jesus. Lord, don't let this word be stolen away, but let it sink deeply into our hearts. Not to shame us, but to free us. To set us on a new course or to set us back on the course we once walked. And maybe even this day and this moment, to finally enter the kingdom, because we lay our crown at your feet, and we go, "I am defeated, I am the sinner, I am the proud man, I am the proud woman, and I'm so sorry. Lord, be glorified in our hearts. Make us free and new and forgiven. That we might love Jesus deeply. And serve him humbly and obediently. Not because we have to. But because he has set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.